Thank you, Steve. One of our elders, we are committed to uh, enjoying uh, our time. It's different with all of us non-gathered, but we're having a lot of fun. For example, I made the comment to the music team that uh, some of the challenges of preaching with nobody here to listen. So you can't see this, but they have a life-size picture of Bob Ross right over here to keep me company this morning. That's their sense of humor coming out. Well, we are, um, we are in a long series, actually, Songs of the Redeemed. We're now in the extended Lent season. I'm not sure when's the last time a church did this, but we're now in extended Lent. So remember that if you're sacrificing for Lent, you can't quit yet. No, I'm just kidding. The formal season is over. Um, we're in extended Lent, but we're focusing on the Songs of the Redeemed, and I'm, I personally am enjoying the uh, the time, the extended time to take a look. Up until last Sunday, which was Easter on the calendar, we said Easter part one, <clears throat> we looked through Revelation and we looked at the songs of the redeemed from the perspective of how God views it in the great battle. So remember John uh, was taken in Revelation 4 into the throne room where he could see everything as God sees it. And so the, uh, they have the big scroll, which the Messiah opens one seal at a time. And inside of that seal are the, uh, well, there's seven seals. And as we begin to unroll that scroll, we get a sense of what God's plan, what his mission is. Well, then last week we made a shift and we added another dimension to it. And we started talking about what is life like without the mask? We're all getting accustomed to wearing a mask. Uh, everywhere I walk now, I go, I... Uh, go to the post office, I go to the uh, grocery store, I wear a mask, and I see a few other people doing it as well. And so this is a great imagery because we looked in Second Corinthians 3 about this whole perspective of taking the mask off. In Christ, the mask comes off. And so what we've done is we have shifted from looking at, from inside the throne room, looking at God's grand plan of redemption and how to overcome evil and, and finish everything, to now we step back into our world and we're looking at the same challenge. You see, part of the challenge, part of God's plan as he unrolls a scroll is what happens to the community of faith, to the church. And part of that is taking that mask off. So we're going to take a few weeks and we're going to look at what does it look like when the mask is removed in various areas. So today I want to take a look at how we perceive ourselves when the mask comes off. What is it like when the mask is on? And what is it like when it comes off? So the very first thing is I want you to, to just journey with me a little bit. You know the story of Christianity. So I'm not going to go to a lot of verses. I'll have some toward the end. But I want to tell the story because I want you to remember it. The story is the uh, image was lost. We, our world was filled with brokenness, deceit. I don't know what it was like for Adam and Eve. I've pondered many times over the decades, what was it like to have a perfect relationship, a perfect fellowship with God where you walk with him in the garden, and then one day you do what you're not supposed to do, and that is all gone. It's all lost. I can't even begin to imagine that. But as the result of the fall, that's what we call it when Adam and Eve sinned, and Paul talks about many others, all of creation, all of creation is... uh, corrupted by that. As a result of that, our relationship with God was fatally disrupted. Death, as he said, entered into the picture. 
Paul argued that in Romans 5. Death came into the picture because of that. So far from walking with God in the garden, Adam and Eve now found only fear in God's presence. So when God shows up after the fall, after they have disobeyed him, we find them hiding. And he has to go find them. The story of Moses taught us even further that um, when even looking upon God brings death. Moses asked God, can I see? Uh, we've looked at that passage before. I, I, I love the interchange of the pronouns. When the golden calf, uh, God says, go down because of your people who you let out of Egypt. And Moses turns right around and says, no, the people who, they're your people and you let them out of Egypt. So he asks if he can see God's face. And God says, no, because whoever sees my face will die. And therefore, John can say, no one has ever seen God at any time. But the only begotten, who we know is Jesus, who is himself God, he reveals him. So the only thing that held our relationship with God as even a possibility, even a possibility, the only thing that made that even possible was God himself, his grace, his love for us. We've, Rob and I have talked, and by the way, Rob, I enjoy the the, um, the way you have brought in some older music, that imagery, bring it back into the church, because that's really what church is all about, is bringing a quest for something deeper inside of us, to bring it into um, our relationships with each other. And thanks for making it fun this morning as well, with the whole style. So the only thing that held our relationship, even as a possibility, was the grace of God, his love for us much like a parent has for a child. Just love our children, love our grandchildren. So, But as a result of the fall, we also experienced a severe loss of relationship with ourself. This was <clears throat> fatally impacted, the loss of relationship with ourself. You know, Adam and Eve, they lost their primary purpose in the garden, tending the garden. Think about what life was like for them that all disappeared, and we went with that. We were on that same journey. We lost our primary purpose in life, tending the garden, loving one another deeply, being in fellowship freely with God, uh, with no, there's no um, conflict, there's no loss of esteem, everything is done well, we're at rest, shalom. Uh, we don't have insecurities driving us, and all of a sudden, all of that changes. In one second, the central theme of humanity became the quest of how to get back to that, what was lost. I do think that um, finding God again and being at peace is what is driving people around the world. Uh, it's what's driving them to get to that place, to find purpose and meaning of life. Now, the world doesn't know, doesn't realize that the answer to that lies in a restoration of a relationship with the one true God. Uh, he is pursuing, I'm absolutely convinced, he's pursuing every human. In fact, I've told lots of parents, three things I believe about God. Um, he loves every human passionately. So now think about your children, especially when they become teenagers. He loves your children far more deeply than you do. Number two, he's been involved in their lives like he has everybody in the cre all of creation, he's been involved in their lives in much more intimate ways than you ever will be. And number three is that he has far more experience whatever the struggle with sin is and rebellion 
than you have. So as a parent, you can relax. As a grandparent, you can relax. So when I'm thinking about all the people, and when I point this way for those of you that know our church, don't know our church, I'm looking out the windows of the sanctuary at uh, the mountain range there. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. And so when I, I believe that whenever I come across anybody, it's not accidental. It's not coincidental. I believe a divine appointment is in every, every relationship. And so what does it look like to love people right where they are? It's very interesting now walking around the county with masks on and having trouble talking to people and we don't shake hands anymore and all those things because the way we connect and relate is shifting as a culture. So the central theme of humanity, which was lost, everybody's trying to get back to that, to find purpose and meaning of life. Now, the impact of this loss cannot be overstated. It just can't be overstated. When we lost this sense of purpose, we were separated from our foundations. I love to sail, Nancy and I do. And uh, the moment we untie the boat from the dock, uh, we have to replace that control with something else, either a motor or a sailboat with the wind. Otherwise, we start floating into other boats. Uh, One of the things I love to (laughs) look at on Instagram, you may think I'm crazy, is uh, the video clips where people take of people in boats that don't know what they're doing. And they're backing out and they back right into another boat. Or they, t- they throw off the, the moorings and on the dock and they float right into the boat next to them. And well, I did that a little bit when I was learning how as well. But the moment we separate from the foundation, we, uh, <coughs> we lose our tether, then we begin to float through life. That's what happens. We float through life, seeking a lot of al- alternatives to find this purpose, the sense of security that is, we're created for it, but we can't find it. We just can't find it. Everywhere we look, we're looking for validation for our own self-worth. Think about these. There's just a few. There are many, many, many. Within our friendships. Within our friendships. It's fascinating to me that when you look at the verses of the New Testament, they're in the active voice, not passive voice, about the way we relate. Love one another, not be loved by one another. Forgive one another, not be forgiven. Carry one another's burdens, not have our burdens carried, on and on and on. And so the very, the very nature of the verbal system in the New Testament is designed to push us into relationships to begin to create this sense, this foundational sense of purpose. And we don't know how to do it. As a church, we really struggle with it. Because um, we want so desperately for people to come to us and love us. And reach out to us. Our friendships, our marriages, our careers, our wealth, our fame, our successes, even our religion. We want to find a sense of purpose there. So everything in us drives us back to this pursuit um, to find these things. The problem with that, each of these pursuits, as we do it, gives back to us a very distorted picture of who we are. It really does. This means that all sin is ultimately sin against God as well as self because it's very distorted. We feel very natural, for example, getting angry. That's not part of God's plan. And so part of this journey, which we looked at over here, opening the seven seals of the scroll, dealing with evil, on this side of it, that same plan is transforming us into the image of a son because we are the bearers. We are as images in the world to reflect this living God and to reflect the kingdom to our broken friends all around us. But it's so easy for us to get caught up 
in it and not even realize it. Sin is so natural to us, we don't know what it's like not to sin. We don't know what it's like not to get angry, not to get discouraged, not to get frustrated, not to get depressed. I mean, you fill in the blank, whatever it is that you struggle with. We don't know what it's like not to do that. That's a very long journey to overcome that. And our natural tendency is always going to get a little bit frustrated when something happens, when injustices occur. We, we don't like that. Um, I see that in our country right now. A lot of people are complaining about the loss of freedom that has happened because of the, the quarantines. And, and uh, we've lost our basic, some of our basic freedoms as Americans, and that's frustrating for people. Our natural disposition as Christians is still, because glory hasn't come, is still to experience that level of sin inside of us. And, and you know what it feels like because when you have an interchange with somebody that you don't quite feel comfortable with, later on you're not quite sure why, but it didn't feel quite like it should. And you own part of that. That's because the self, the self has been twisted and distorted along with everything else. So what did we actually lose? Our self-definition was completely, originally, completely found in our relationship with God and with each other. We lost that. To be human meant to be male and female together in partnership. That was the original garden experience. So that's what it meant to be human. And I would argue that's what it meant to uh, reveal dignity and to reveal the image of God. We were meant to be stewards, not owners. Think of the difference. Even for those of you that have your own business, technically or theologically, you're not an owner, you're a steward. And if you can transfer just your thought just from that, you don't own the money that you have, you don't own your house, you don't own your employees, you don't own your business, you don't own your children, you're stewards. That's the fundamental message all the way through the scriptures. We are meant to be stewards, not owners, And therefore, as stewards, we are partners with God. As owners, we're not. We become very self-focused, self-controlled, if you will. But we're meant to be stewards. Our children, we're meant to love them well. Uh, We're meant to raise them as responsible adults because that's part of God's plan. Our money, everything in the earth belongs to the Lord, the psalm says. We're to use it wisely for his glory. So even just that one sense of loss, if we, can, if we can recover that, then everything begins to change. We're stewards, we're not owners. I look at you as a, as a congregation and I, I think often like Moses did, God, these are your people. These are your people. Help me to love them well. I pray that almost every day. Help me to love them well. Help me to walk with them the way they need, the way you need me to walk with you to listen to your, 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 uh, your, listen to your sins, your confessions, listen to your praises, listen to your uncertainties, your discouragements, to listen to all of those things because I'm a steward. We were also confident. We were at peace. We experienced true shalom, the wholeness, and all that we did was present. We lost that. As we participated with God, we found meaning and purpose. And honestly, we didn't have to think about it. Adam and Eve didn't have to think about it. It was so natural to them. Now it's a challenge. Now it's a struggle. Those are the lineages that are used all throughout Scripture because of the fall. We had an accurate self-understanding. In other words, we knew who we were and we accepted it. Now we don't. 
So we have programs that push us toward a positive self-esteem and, and a variety of things. And, and it's really hard to know who we are in our deepest moments. Nancy knows my darkest moments. I, I, I wonder what people think of me. You know, because of my upbringing, I have a very hard time believing that people might just like me. I went to counseling for that for a while to work through that and have gotten better. But that natural impulse to doubt, that insecurity of who I really am is still there, very strong. The fall cost us this sense of self-identity. That's what we lost. We lost all of it. And nobody's exempt. It doesn't matter how much you pretend. No one is exempt. And our brokenness and desire to replace the self-identity, we survived and we developed a new criteria, the autonomous self. I can figure it out. I can. That's how we think. We are no longer man with woman. We are man now without woman or woman without man or man and woman against everything else. We don't know what it's like to have that perfect, authentic relationship and partnership. And honestly, it takes a lifetime of trial and struggle to even generate the best marriages. It takes a long time. We now struggle with self-definition very differently than we would have before. All of a sudden, all these things come in and we have to wrestle with them. Power. How do we demonstrate power? How do we use it? Dominance. What does that mean? How do we, at what point do we move from leadership to dominance? I don't, you know, that's a line that's hard to measure that. Success. All of a sudden, we're concerned about success. I don't think Adam and Eve ever had that. Uh, But success now is part of our world. And as I've talked to many of our people who are retiring, it's interesting watching them transition from that whole success motif for decades to significance when really we should try to make that move early on. We should try to define what is actually significant about our lives and don't let the world tell us what success is. But then again, we have jobs. We have bosses that tell us you got to do this, 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 and this, and this. If you don't, you're going to get fired. So So the world is being defined for us all the time. And as Christians, it would be so helpful for us to get past that and say, what does significance look like? Personal happiness. That's another part of our world with this self-autonomy. Uh, self-actualization. That's a word that's used in all the human resource language of, in the psychological language of the self. Self-actualization or self-gratification. How do I live out who I am? And what do I do to receive this sense of fulfillment and purpose and gratification? That all became part of the fall. I wasn't there with Adam and Eve. It was so natural for them, I think, to be just accepted and loved and to love each other. And uh, we lost it. So when the mask comes off, when we turn to Christ, the veil, the mask is removed. All of this begins to change. We read last week, 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul says in Galatians 5, 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Freedom from what? Freedom from all of these things that are, that are pushing us around and anchoring us in a 
fallen world. We can finally become, start to become free of all these insecurities and these challenges that we have. But he goes on. By the way, Paul goes on. He says, don't, let your, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh in Galatians 5. Here's what Paul says here. And we all with unveiled faces, the mask comes off. We're now able, and you go back last week and I'll argue it there. We're now able to contemplate, think of a mirror. A mirror does two things. You're able to look at something, but you're also able to reflect something. So we become like that. We are now able to contemplate and therefore as a result of that reveal the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into His image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Doesn't happen just like that. It's not like you come to Christ and all this stuff goes away. I think Calvin argued that we're like a mirror. It's just very dirty. And as we learn to love and serve Christ and others, we start polishing that mirror. So we can see him more deeply as we gaze into it. It's the image you're used in James. And therefore we begin to reflect his image more brightly. But it takes a lifetime of the spirit. So this is the counter to what's happening of breaking the seven seals. This is what's happening in our individual lives and in the life of the church. The face, the, the thing is taken away. So here is the, when the mask comes off, these things begin to change. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, thanks Steve for reading that, uh, we can see some of these changes. We now behold the, uh, one another. Okay, think of it this way. We have this long journey to come back to Christ and recover what was lost. Maybe that's a good imagery for you. So the very first thing he says is we begin to see everyone differently. 2 Corinthians five sixteen. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That alone would radically change the church. Think of the scarlet letter, the A, adultery, H, homosexuality. Think of the scarlet letters that we brand people with. And here's what Paul says. From now on, because we have Christ and because the veil has been taken away, we no longer regard people from this worldly point of view. Though once we did regard Christ this way, he says, we do so no longer. How do we look at one another now? I've said many, many times, and you've heard it. It doesn't matter to me what sin you're, you're, you're stuck with. It really doesn't matter. Except, as a pastor, it tells me how I can love you better. And how I can move with effective pastoral engagement to help you. Because I know that every sin causes, has negative side effects and and is an anchor that pulls you backwards and we want to move forward. So the only reason I care about whatever sin you happen to be stuck with is then I know how to help you. That's why. So I don't think anymore about the scarlet letter mentality. That's what I was raised with. And we all deal with that. Oh, we know George. He is, you know, he's always a certain type of person. He's always getting angry or we know, you know, whatever it is. It's Paul saying, we no longer look at people that way. So we begin to change the way we, rec- we recognize each other. and We see people differently. We see people as made in the image of God. And we see that we can love them and love them passionately. But he goes on. But we also begin to recognize that now we're part of the new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is the verse we used all last summer in the amphitheater. I hope we get back there this summer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
The old has gone. The new is here. It's all brand new. Now we have to learn how to engage that and enjoy it. I don't have to get angry. I don't have to get depressed. It's very human. And as we mature in Christ, those things slowly begin to lessen or become de-energized. So we begin to recognize that we're now part of the new creation. But he goes on, the next two verses, we begin to recover the truth that we never ceased to be God's creation whom he loves deeply. Look at verse 18 and 19. All of this, looking at each other differently, us becoming part of the new creation, all of this, the veil taken away, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That's why I no longer hold to the scarlet letter approach. Like I said, it doesn't matter what the sin is that you struggle with, except except how I can love you and help you. And he has committed to us this same message or behavior of reconciliation. So we begin to recover the truth that we, we never lost God's love. We're his children. We're his creation. He would never stop loving us. We, we never cease to be part of that creation, and we never lost that deep love that he has for us. But then he goes on. We can now see that we have an entirely new purpose and vocation. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Like what he says in Ephesians 3, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. He uses us to reach our friends and neighbors and the people that we don't know. That's why I don't believe in coincidence. I believe that every time I meet somebody, it's by divine appointment. So we are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us, which he is. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I've said many times, don't ever be ashamed to tell people you're a Christian. They really don't know what that means. They know the stereotype, but you have the chance to turn it around and to change it. You have a chance to ask them, what do you think it means to be a Christian? And you're going to hear some horrible story that comes out. And you have the chance to begin to correct it. Finally, he goes on in verse 21. We can now wrestle with having a completely new value in Christ. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? What it means is we now have the chance to reflect and reveal this righteousness to everyone around us. Reading a book by Harv Powers, he actually lives in Denver, I know him, called Redemptive Leadership, and here's what he says. I believe God uses all the events of our lives, both positive and negative, to forgo, I mean, to forge in us our redemptive influence for his kingdom. If the gospel holds any power at all, it does so because God works powerfully in and through our weaknesses. Hear that? In and through. He quotes 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He has said to me, God, to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
Or he says elsewhere, when I'm weak, he is strong. The promise of redemption lies at the heart of the gospel. It doesn't mean that God wipes the slate clean. No, it means that he uses all the elements of our life for his redemptive purposes. This truth conveys powerful implications for leaders. It means that God uses us not in spite of, but because of our weaknesses. Rather than our failures being swept under the rug, they actually begin to aid us in our efforts to influence people. Okay, what does this mean? Let me just give you some closing thoughts. Sin is a very powerful enemy because it never ceases to drag us away from the truth in Christ. Don't be fooled. It doesn't matter how small the sin. It never fails to lure us away. It it works tirelessly to keep us from recognizing our true and abiding reality that we are stewards, partners with God for the sake of His mission. You see, we now become caretakers in a very different way. We need to guard, we together as a church, need to guard our understanding of us, uh, of who we are in Christ. This is the purpose of the church. It really is. To reflect deeply and guard this truth and run to each other's aid when sin begins to lure them away. To run. That's why I'm so grateful that several of you have trusted your personal lives with me. We've sat down and you just have been honest about things. No condemnation. No judgment. Oh yeah, you'll find honesty. You'll find transparency. Uh, Teenagers often ask me, did you do this when you were younger? And I have to say, I did. Sadly, I did. And here's the cost of that. If that's the role we play, and that's the purpose of the church. As we become aware of who we are in Christ, we're better able to lead with humility and grace. As we recapture this, this self, the perspective of the self, that is honest and with integrity. This means that we need to better understand the balance between our weaknesses and the wonder of God's work within us. Being honest about our failures and God's transformation. This is the nature of integrity. This is authentic integrity. And when somebody says, I don't like Christians because, because they're hypocrites, that is such a wide open door for ministry. All you have to do is say, yeah, you're right. It is. I don't want to be that way, but it is. Tell me what you've observed when you use that language of hypocrisy. And you know what? You have a discussion right there. That takes humility and it takes courage to be honest and keep that balance. For the sake of our friends, I encourage you, gaze deeply. You see, this is what Easter is all about. This is why Christ came. This is one of the reasons to restore an accurate self-view which was lost he wants to give us back our value to give us back our true understanding of belonging to him a true understanding of what it means to belong to each other to don't look at people anymore the same way to just demonstrate grace and awe and love in your eyes to get to the point when every person looks at you if they look in your eyes they see them twinkling with delight that's where we're headed. To give us back our vocation, our role, to give us back our true future, 
so we can understand it, to shift our perspective of self back to community committed to one another and to teach us to put all these sins aside. Father, thank you that you care about us as individuals and you come for us and you begin to work that long, sweet journey of helping us to uh, fall more deeply in love with you and therefore ourselves. We'll talk next week that we can only love people as good as we love ourselves. Thank you, Father, for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, if you were here right now, we'd be celebrating communion. But you're not here, so we're going to do something similar today like we did last week. If you would like to celebrate communion, uh, we will follow all the rules of social distancing and mass and cleanliness. We invite you to come to the church. You can come sit for a few minutes in here and listen to Rob play his guitar. You can walk through the narthex, celebrate communion, and go out the front door. Uh, You can just drive up if you don't feel comfortable coming inside. That's okay as well. I'll be at the back door, and I'll I'll just step out and serve you communion in your cars because we still want to stay connected as a church. So uh, come this afternoon and enjoy communion. Thank you.